Good morning, everyone. I want to start this message with a story. Something that happened to me a number of years ago, and I really hope I did not tell this story to you all before. I, I, I searched my sermons. I don't think I did, but if I did, uh, this is chance excuse me. But a number of years ago, I came out to my car after work and discovered the battery was dead. There was good news and there was bad news. The bad news is that I didn't have jumper cable or a battery pack. So I would have to roll start it, which I had done plenty of times before because I knew how to get my money's worth out of a car battery. The good news was that the parking lot I was in at Liberty was a large parking lot. It was mostly empty. I guess it was summer. And um, there weren't any spectators either, which was also good news. But back to the to the bad news again. The bonus bad news is that the parking lot was a fairly flat one. It, it had a shallow grade. There, there was a lowest point, but it wasn't it wasn't as steep as I would like. In fact, I went out of my way, I think, during that time to, to start parking in steeper parking lots for a little while, so I got the battery changed. So anyway, um, but I thought that if I aimed my car across the lot at the lowest point of the lot and started pushing like crazy, I could probably get up enough speed to roll start it. And uh, I thought I had enough distance to try two or three times even. So I opened the door and started pushing. And uh, I can't remember if I ended up trying two times or, or three times, but each time I failed. Long story short, I, I failed. I couldn't get the, the car going quite fast enough. I, I was getting close. You know, from previous experience, I knew I was getting close, but just not quite fast enough for it to roll over and fire. So too bad for me. I ran out of space and ended up at the lowest point of the parking lot with an unstarted car. And as I was frustrated, I jumped into the car trying to decide what to do next. And while I was sitting there, I noticed something that made me feel pretty foolish. Uh, I looked over and here the emergency brake was partially cool. Not all the way, not enough that I couldn't push it, but enough that it probably, you know, made a little bit of an effect. Uh, enough to make a slight difference in the car's top speed when I was pushing it. And it was kind of funny in a way. I mean, it was ironic. Here I was pushing this car like crazy. While all this time in the, in, inside the car, the emergency brake was like this. So it was, uh, I had frustrated my own effort. And the way in which I had done it was very basic and obvious. So this morning we're going to look at uh, two different groups of people in the Bible who remind me of my experience trying to roll start my Camry. They they are both having what I'm going to call a frustrated religious experience. And the problem is not that deep or complicated. It's basic. So the first group of people are Jews in the Old Testament. The second group are Christians in the New Testament. And I think from both groups of people, my hope is that we'll be reminded of, of how God works in our lives and um, how we can get in the way of that. The motivation of the sermon is, is, 
is just to kind of give us an all a general reminder of some of these basic principles. It's not that I have, you know, uh, a certain set of people in mind that that uh, especially need to hear this. It's more supposed to be a, a general reminder for all of us. So the um, the first scripture reading we'll we'll read is from Isaiah chapter fifty-eight. You turn there. So the thing about this group of people that is surprising is that they are not doing well spiritually, but they are described as seeking God daily and delighting to know His ways. And I would typically expect people like that to be experiencing a rich and rewarding walk with God, but that is not the case with these Jews here in Isaiah 58. So this chapter of Isaiah portrays a group of people that are to me, they seem frustrated and puzzled, even. Um, they're, they're seeking God, in quotes, but they're not getting the response they expect. In fact, God is taking no notice of them, as we see in verse 3. He is unmoved by their efforts. But as we read this passage here in Isaiah 58, I think we'll see the problem is fairly obvious, at least to us, uh, because even though these people are religiously Active, they really are not that interested in obeying God. Even as they're fasting, they are self-seeking and not God-seeking. So Isaiah 58, starting verse 1, we'll read through verse 7. I'm reading from the New King James. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they teach me daily and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and strife with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down and tear like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house to the poor who are cast out? When you feed the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? We'll stop there. But we can see, I think, pretty clearly that, that the religious activity of this group of Jews here in Isaiah 58, it, it was a facade. I don't know what they thought they were accomplishing by fasting, and that's on the one hand, and on the other hand, taking advantage of, of the poor and committing violence, really is not a puzzle here. Their sinful behavior is what is keeping them far from God. And he says it plainly in Isaiah 59, he says, 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is the ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, what can we learn from the Isaiah 58 Jews? We're Christians. The Jews in Isaiah 58 were not, in fact, they were pretty godless. But I think there are some fundamental principles that we Christians ought to pick up on. I'll give you five quick points. One is that it is possible to be very active in a religious sense and still not be right with God and missing out on his blessings. Point number two is being in that situation, uh, being religious without being right with God, is a frustrating experience. It can make people wonder whether God is blind or deaf or missing in action. Point number three is that God is not blind, deaf, or missing in action. The Isaiah 59. But, and as we read Isaiah 58, it can seem silly to us that, that the Jews would even suspect that God might be the problem. I mean, that's ridiculous. If God is there, the problem. But it's good for us to remember that we're also human and can have uh, similar suspicions. Point number four is that people can be involved in religion without being interested in doing God's will. That's what I would say about these Jews here in Isaiah 58. Point number five is that while fasting and other spiritual activities are good and can be helpful, there is no substitute for a surrendered heart. Now, we're not done with Isaiah 58. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. Uh, but we're going to take a break from this chapter right now and study a group, another group of people, these are Christians in the New Testament. And uh, I think the reason we're doing this is because as I was studying Isaiah 58, I had this question. It was, you know, I can see a lack of obedience here from these godless people uh, causing this barrier between them and God. But can something similar happen to Christians? And I think the answer is yes. So let's look at James chapter 4. Uh, this is a group of believers who are struggling. James chapter 4. And James puts their struggles in extreme language that I hope they figured it. Uh, these Christians, I would say, are having a painful Christian experience. They're fighting with each other. They're missing out on spiritual blessings. Things are not going well. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your numbers? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But He gives more grace. Therefore He says, 
God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So the first thing I want to point out about these Christians is that they cannot be satisfied. Surely they are not satisfied with their Christian experience. They are experiencing constant fighting, discontentment. They're asking for things that God doesn't give and not asking for things that they should be. So like the Isaiah 58 Jews, they are having a frustrating experience with God. And James tells us, I'm just kind of summarizing what James is saying here, but he says basically the cause of these problems is selfishness, which Christians can have. Their selfishness leads to quarrels with each other, and because of the desires of self-centered, they don't ask for the things they should, which leaves them with unmet spiritual needs. And then the things they do ask for, God doesn't give because they're asking for the wrong reasons, selfish reasons. Basic problem here is selfishness, which James also links to worldliness. So just like in Isaiah 58, uh, these people are having a dissatisfying experience, not because God is short-handed or inattentive or uncaring, but because people are selfish and sinful. And what did they do about this huge problem? And you'll see the solution that James calls his readers to is not it's not prayer, it's not scripture reading, it's not sermons, it's not church attendance or being involved in church programs. Instead his solution begins with verse seven, submit to God, which is another way of saying surrender to God. Uh, James could have stopped there, but I'm glad he kept going. He says, Draw near to God. He says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There, there is no drawing near to God with an unsurrendered heart. And no amount of prayer or fasting or almsgiving or whatever will make up for that. You can ask the Isaiah 58 Jews. Okay, so we're going to move on from James 4. We didn't go very deep there, but I'm hoping that we got enough. So there's some things that we can learn from these Christians here in James 4. One is that it is possible to be a Christian and extremely far from experiencing the kind of walk with God that we would like us to have. Uh, number two is that Selfishness leads to spiritual poverty. It does. It causes us to miss out on important spiritual blessings, either because we don't ask for them or we ask for the wrong reasons. And the solution begins with submitting to God or surrendering to God. Again, when you compare the, the wicked Jews uh, in Isaiah 58 with the immature James 4 Christians, they're in a different place, very different in some ways, but there are a lot of parallels, too. 
In both cases, we're not treating other people well. In both cases, God is not responding to at least some of their requests. In both cases, the problem is not with God, but with sin and selfishness. And behind that problem is the root problem, which is lack of surrender. Now, one of the, um, I want to just kind of pause here, one of the wrong impressions that you can get from this message that I don't want you to get, anyone to get, is, is to think that, um, you know, just because I'm, I'm dissatisfied with my walk with God, or God is not answering prayers the way I would like Him to, that that means that I have a, a, a major sin problem or a major problem with surrender to God. It may be. I mean, that could be it, or it may not be. There are other reasons for why we can be um, dissatisfied. Um, there could be other reasons for why God doesn't answer our prayer, right? So I don't, I don't want to leave with a false impression. I think, I think we should all examine our hearts to see if we are as surrendered as we know how to be. Okay, so let's shift gears and talk about what this surrender might look like. I think we know what surrender is in general terms. I want us to review it in terms of two questions that I think we should be asking God on a regular basis. The first one focuses on the more common aspect of surrender that I think we probably think of in terms of what does God want me to do. The second question is maybe a less common way for us to think of surrender, but um, I find it helpful recently to be asking myself this question. It has more to do with James chapter 4. But let's start with this one. Surrender is asking, Lord, what would you have me to do? I'm going to read the verse from Acts chapter 9, verse 6, the conversion of Paul. So he trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So, Lord, what should I do? It's a simple question that a surrendered heart asks on a regular basis. Some of you probably aren't seeing that question being asked by Paul in Acts chapter 9 because of the variation in manuscripts. So just to make sure that we all see it, if you would turn to Acts chapter 22, you'll see it there again. Here Paul is relating his conversion story to a particular crowd of people. And in verse 10, he said, so I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. So he asks, he asks this question, and he gets some answers. He gets some answers for short-term things to do and long-term things to do. Most of us just get the short-term. But he was to go to Damascus and meet a Christian brother named Ananias. And God told Ananias about Paul and said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I don't know how soon God, or to what extent God showed Paul how much he was going to suffer. But it didn't make Paul change course. 
But here's what I want to know about Acts 22. This theme fits perfectly into Paul's approach to living the Christian life. Do you remember what's going on in the scene when he's in front of his conversion? He's in front of this mob of angry Jews that want to kill him. He's in Jerusalem defending himself before this crowd of Jews. How did he end up in such a dangerous situation? Was he careless? Was he clueless? If you back up to Acts chapter 20, you'll see that he was neither. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul's talking to the Ephesians, to the elders from the church of Ephesus, and he says, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit, or as the ESV puts it, constrained by the Spirit, to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that things and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, unlike many Christians, I'm afraid, never stopped asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do? And his spiritual experience was very different from that of a James 4 Christian, and definitely nothing like the Isaiah 58 Jews. And so I believe Paul ran and finished his race with joy. So I may finish my race with joy, is what he said. So that's one of the questions we need to be asking. Lord, what do you want me to do? And not just when we're faced with huge decisions. I mean, we don't have to ask him about little insignificant decisions. You know what I mean. But I think it should be kind of a, a daily approach to life. All right, so that's one question. The other question I think we should be asking ourselves or asking God is, Lord, how am I being selfish? I don't know if you remember or not, but John D. Martin gave us this simple definition of sin, which I cannot forget. It is sin is selfishness. Basically, sin is selfishness, which I agree with. And I would like to tackle on something to that. Uh, which is that the opposite of surrender is selfishness. Basically, the opposite of surrender is selfishness. People are really unselfish. They will be surrendered to God. The opposite of surrender is selfishness. The basic problem with the James 4 Christians was selfishness. And the basic solution to that problem was submit to God, which is surrender. There's an inverse relationship between Selfishness and surrender. The more you have of the one, the less you have of the other. Kind of like uh, when an emergency brake is on in the car, the more brake, the less speed you get pushing your car. When Christians are selfish, they are also double minded, as it says in James 4, which is a lack of surrender. You know, I think it's possible to think about surrender in terms of being willing to do whatever big things God would have us to do. But there is um, there is a thing of everyday, commonplace selfishness that we can have and that I struggle with that God needs us to renounce. And uh, maybe He wants to do that before He calls us to serve in some distant country. 
or whatever big call we might have in our lives. So if we want to be surrendered before God, we should ask Him to show us where we are being selfish in our daily pursuits. Let's go back to Isaiah 58 now, and we'll just kind of review some of the blessings of surrender. I won't really make any points here. We'll just read this scripture and observe. In Isaiah 58, remember, God is calling for a different kind of fasting, not the one with sackcloth and ashes. But what he really wants is a fast of obedience and unselfishness. I want to call it the fast of surrender. And so if you pick up in verse 8, he says, basically, if you do the kind of fasting I'm calling you to, then your life shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and you will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, living a Christian life is often hard. Uh, it can feel like pushing a car sometimes, whether it's a VW bug or a Honda Accord, hopefully not a Lincoln Navigator. But pushing a car can be hard. Uh, it's a lot harder when emergency brake is on. And in the same way, being a Christian is a lot harder when we're not really very surrendered, when we have a basic surrender problem. It makes it a lot harder. And sincerely asking God, what does he want me to do? Uh, how am I being selfish? I think there was good steps for seeing that problem and dealing with it. One way to put this sermon would be to say, if you want to get God's attention, start with obedience. That's how I started out with Isaiah 58 when I was studying it initially. But if you are okay with a Christian experience that is both frustrating and disappointing, be nonchalant about holiness, make personal pleasure a top priority, rarely say no to yourself, and rarely make significant sacrifices. That will definitely deliver disappointment and frustration. So here are just a few concluding points. Um, 
If we have a basic surrender problem, we will miss out on spiritual blessings and have a dissatisfying walk with God. There is no solution to that problem outside of repentance and surrender. There, there is no spiritual activity that's going to make up for this problem. Uh, there is no religious experience that will make up for a lack of surrender. There's the perfect devotional book, the perfect podcast or sermon, even the perfect church will not make up for this problem. Um, another point is just that this surrender thing is going to have to be an ongoing pursuit by all of us. It's not something we're ever going to be done growing in. I think the basic goal for all of us is just to be as surrendered as we know how to be. Um, that means we probably still have a lot to learn and experiences to, to grow through and new challenges to face. But at, at this point in our life, that we could be as surrendered as we know how to be. So may God bless us and help us in this. You know, this the, the final bit of encouragement is that this is God's work and, and He does it and He is good at bringing us to the place we need to be. So let's cooperate best we can and not despair when we see that there is work still to be done. God bless you.